This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, July 23rd, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. Detroit's woes started decades ago, so why didn't the auto industry and state and local governments respond appropriately? Megan McArdle is a columnist at Bloomberg and author of the forthcoming The Upside of Down. She says it's part of a problem many of us face, the expectation that good times will never end. We spoke today. I look back at Detroit's uh, past, and it's actually hard to overstate how successful Detroit was between 1910 and 1950. Um, I mean, Detroit cars were not just the powerhouse in America. All over the world, people wanted American cars because they were the top quality cars. They had more diverse cars, more cars, (laughs) uh, bigger and better than anything else that was being made, especially after World War II, with the German auto industry lying in ruins. And people looked at that and they said, well, therefore, we can afford to make very large and lavish promises about the future. The auto workers and the auto companies did this, and Detroit did this. They had an enormous government presence, uh, extremely generous benefits. They exempted a lot of their workers from Social Security uh, because they figured the auto industry would just always be um, throwing off this cash that they could then afford um, to pay these benefits with. And then when it started shrinking, they were unable to react. They were in a way victims of their own success. The money had been so free-flowing and so easy for so long that when the tap cut off, people just didn't believe it had happened. And so they didn't take the adjustments 20 and 30 and 40 years ago. Even when the writing was on the wall, they could see it, but somehow they couldn't read it. And so they kept acting as if you know it was business as usual. And by the time they people were talking about really needing to make changes, it was far too late because there were far too many people who had invested in these promises that couldn't be kept. It's hard for me to imagine that in the mid-80s that Detroit, the city, uh, and the region, as well as the auto industry, couldn't have at that point at least seen the writing on the wall. They did. But here's the thing. Um, You know, you can think of it as why do people stay in failed relationships when it's kind of obvious it's not going anywhere. Um, You know, why do gamblers go back and try to win their money back from the casino, even though the first thing you should learn as a gambler is that the percentage is always to the house. It's because once you've made a large and costly investment, it's very hard to just cut your losses and say, you know what, that was yesterday and we don't have that anymore, so we'd better prepare for tomorrow. Instead, what you tend to try to do is get it back. And that was what that's what Detroit auto companies have been doing for, for 30 years. And it was also what the city of Detroit did. They looked at um, you know, the, the, the history of urban renewal all across the Rust Belt, not just in Detroit, is this incredibly sad attempt to basically do construction, even though these cities are shrinking and there's no, the population is shrinking, is to say like, well, we did a lot of big construction back in 1920 and we were really successful. So if we do a lot of big construction now, then probably we'll be successful again. Um, you go to, to Buffalo, for example, uh, there's a subway that basically not only destroyed their main street because they closed it off to car traffic, um, but it just runs empty up and down the streets. Um, and sort of like they thought if they, they could dress the city up like New York City, people would be confused and start acting like it was New York City. In Detroit, you have the People Mover, which is another circuit around downtown. You know, let's dress up as Chicago. They have a loop. We have a loop. Um, the difference is that Chicago had a healthy, diverse uh, industry base and Detroit didn't. Conservatives, I hear, uh, responding to this, blame all this on pensions. 
And the response from uh, people like Paul Krugman is, no, 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 it's just market forces. I, if I understand you correctly, you're saying it was a culture that essentially led to uh, the lavish promises and an inability to respond to market forces. Yes. Um, indubitably, market forces have hammered Michigan. Um, but part of the reason that they hammered Michigan is that they monocultured their industry. They were so dependent on the auto industry and all of the ancillary industries that supported it, the steel companies, the auto suppliers, the distributors, and so forth. Um, so while it's true that there was this disruption caused by market forces, it's also true that Michigan and Detroit could have handled that a lot better if they hadn't doubled continually doubled down on trying to rebuild the auto industry and somehow trying to make what had worked before work again. And that goes for the auto industry itself uh, and the unions at the auto industry who, I mean, the unions were phenomenally sort of blind to what was happening. I'm not saying that they, they completely didn't recognize it, but, you know, a few weeks before GM went bankrupt, the, the UAW was completely blindsided by the fact that they were going bankrupt, despite the fact that, you know, they have publicly available cash uh, financial statements. You could see the cash going down continually, but somehow um, everyone knew that water run, ran downhill, but uh, no one actually thought that it was going to hit bottom. What about the federal role here? It seems like uh, the feds over this long history of uh, Detroit and specifically the auto industry uh, sort of helped, I guess, calcify, if you will, the response from uh, the locals. Well, in a way, I, th I think that uh, I think that the 2008 bankruptcy bailout was very bad, um, not just as sort of general policy, but it was really bad for the city of Detroit. Um, and I think that you see this in the judge who recently stayed the bankruptcy filing um, because under the Michigan state constitution, it's illegal to um, for a government uh, within the state of Michigan to cut pensions. And the judge seemed to recognize that there's not actually the money to pay the pensions. I mean, Detroit's median income is $27,000 a year for a household. It's extremely low. They just don't have the tax base. Um, and the judge seemed to recognize this. And what she said was, I'm going to send this opinion to Barack Obama. And he'll be, you know, he'll do something about this. Um, and I, I think that the mentality that it built in Detroit um, definitely led them over the last few years to expect that maybe federal help might be forthcoming. I don't want to overstate this. I don't think that the Detroit's core problem is that they were expecting a bailout. Uh, I think they have a lot of other core problems. Um, but in the same way that I don't think that bankers expecting a bailout caused the financial crisis, but I do think that bankers expecting a bailout is now giving um, these two big defail banks a financing advantage over their smaller competitors because people do think, well, if Goldman goes under, the, the feds will just step in anyway. Um, so I don't need to worry about that when I'm buying their debt. That, that Detroit, the government of Detroit may have started thinking, well, you know, they bailed out the auto workers. Why wouldn't you know, the state or the federal government step in and help us out? Um, which may have kept them from, from taking some of the necessary steps um, to, to at least put this on some sort of a reasonable footing before the emergency manager was appointed. Peter Van Doren uh, here at Cato edits Regulation Magazine. He likes to say when it comes to government liabilities, they fall up. <laughs> so from the city to the state and to the extent that they can get it from the state to the federal government, is there any appetite, do you think, for uh, trying to 
write a check here? I think they're going to have a hard time getting a bailout from from Michigan's governor. Uh, And I think that they're going to have an even harder time getting a bailout from the Republican Congress. Um, And I think that ultimately that's as it should be. For all that, I feel extremely sorry for workers for the city of Detroit who put in years and years expecting to get pensions and even more for the firefighters and the police who don't even get Social Security. So these are people who may be retired and and may lose half of their pension and not have Social Security to make it up, which normally, you know, normally when there's um, this kind of failure, there's at least some sort of view of Social Security, there's the there's pension insurance, and the state governments don't have any of that. So I feel very sorry for them. And I think that... Um, that's a great tragedy, and I, I certainly hope that Americans will step in and try to find some way to help those people. Um, but the message that you send by bailing out the state government, because for all of the fact that I, I do agree that market forces have made Detroit unsupportable at the population level it's at, um, you know, the, the advantages of being located on a great lake so that you can cheaply ship steel just aren't what they used to be. Um, so probably the city would have had to shrink. But it didn't shrink in an orderly way. It didn't plan for this. They've had extraordinarily corrupt and inefficient and ineffective government for decades. Um, the reason the pensions are so generous is that people, the city wasn't making its pension payments, that they were overpromising. Uh, they were, they had too high assumptions about how the pension was going to grow. Um, if the government steps in and bails that out, um, the message that you're sending is, hey, if you're a badly run city government, you should make a lot of pension promises that you can't keep because eventually the federal government or the state government is going to step in and, and basically hand you the money. I don't think that's an expectation in most most states, though, because the, I think the like you say, the, the these things caught many of these governments by surprise. I think they did and they didn't. Um, you know, for a long time, governments didn't even really do regular accounting for their pensions. It's sort of shocking that, uh, you know, in in 1970, the federal government made pensions basically report how much they were funding them. You couldn't just say, well, I'm promising you a pension. Um, You'll get it 30 years from now, and I'm going to pay that out of current earnings. If you were going to promise a worker something, you had to actually put aside the assets to deliver on that promise. Otherwise, you couldn't make the promise in the first place. Um, and that strikes me as, as basically good transparency. Um, state, go- state and local governments didn't have to do that. And so frequently they didn't. They would just increase the pension uh, as a way of not, uh, you know, I can't afford to give you pay because that would require me to raise taxes on existing taxpayers. So why don't I just promise that some future taxpayer is going to pay you a lot of money later? Um, and workers like this because the, the, they were relatively cheap. You didn't have to sacrifice much in the way of other benefits in order to get that concession. Um, and I don't think that most of the politicians involved really thought that it was just going to somehow be free and easy to make good on these incredibly lavish pension promises that a lot of state and local governments made. Um, What I do think that they were obviously, everyone was taken by surprise by the 2008 financial crisis. Um, You know, lots of pension funds ended up underfunded when that happened. The difference is that most of the pension funds that were underfunded had had much lower governments are allowed to, to get away with making much more rosy assumptions than 
private companies are. Why? Because the governments write the rules and they don't want to have to pay for their promises um, because it would be a lot harder to do that and curry votes with the public sector unions. And so, you know, I, I do think obviously that the, the market crash plays a role in that, but the market's back, right? The market has gone back to where it was. And Detroit's pensions are still markedly underfunded. And that tells you a lot about what's the real problem with their pension system. Megan McArdle is a columnist at Bloomberg and author of the forthcoming The Upside of Down. You can read more on Detroit's woes at our website, cato.org.